You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Our guest on this episode is a behavior expert and pioneer of values thinking. His research and advisory services are used in industries as wide-ranging as sportswear, school supplies, luxury goods, and hedge funds. He works with global humanitarian foundations like the Environmental Defense Fund and the United Nations. He's the founder of Value Graphics Database, the first statistically accurate global measurement of what everyone on Earth cares about. And his research has led him to become an outspoken advocate for the eradication of demographic stereotypes, as you'll hear on this episode. He speaks internationally, and his most recent book, We Are All the Same Age Now, was an international marketing number one bestseller named one of the top 10 leadership books of the year by Inc. Magazine. The book has also been called a genuinely original contribution to marketing by Kirkus Reviews. You can find the book on Amazon, and we'll post a link to that in the show notes. Or if you're watching this episode on YouTube, make sure you hit subscribe first and foremost, but you'll also find a link in the show notes to the YouTube video. Here, for your listening pleasure, are the self-made strategies of David Allison. So tell us about Value Graphics, how you started the company, and how you came up with this idea to switch over from demographics to more value-based thinking. Well, I, I, I want to tell you that story for sure, but I want to start this way and, and just say that I'm not anti-demographic or psychographic. I think that you need all three, demographics, psychographics, and value graphics. The problem is we've been using demographics and psychographics to do jobs that they're not qualified to do. And without this third piece called value graphics, you've got two legs on a three-legged stool called audience understanding. So if you're really going to know who your audience is, what they're all about and how you can influence them and engage them, you need to have all three. So let's back up it now and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about value graphics. It's an interesting thing when you think about it. Every organization on earth exists to do just one thing. And that's identify a group of people and get them to do something. I can't think of a single organization, for-profit, not-for-profit, religious, state, governments, local, that doesn't really matter. Local, national, regional. Um, global, they all are out there trying to figure out who's this group of people, and how can we get them to do what we want them to do? It's kind of makes all of the complexity that we put around the work that we do in the marketing world and the business world seem a little bit silly when you just boil it down to that kind of basic level, but it's true. So I think it would be really uh, amazing if we could understand that's the case. How do people decide what they're going to do? If our jobs are to influence people and get them to do something, we better know how to influence them and how it is people think about their world and make a decision versus A versus B. So I started diving into different fields of human behavior science. And if you look at neuroscience and psychology and psychiatry and sociology, anything that has to do with human behavior, they don't agree on a lot of stuff. In fact, they fight about a lot of stuff, but they do agree on one thing. And that one thing is that the central key to understanding how everybody makes every decision 24-7, 365, our behaviors, our feelings, our emotions, our likes, our dislikes, all comes from what we value, which is just a fancy code word for what we care about. So if you just think about that for a second, uh, if you care about your family, then you're only going to do stuff that's going to benefit your family and you're going to run away from stuff that might harm your family. 
And if you care about the environment, you're going to do stuff that's good for the environment and you're going to run away from anything that doesn't benefit the planet. So dig a little deeper. And we started doing a bunch of research around this. And I'll get into the depth of that in a moment. But it turns out there's only 56 values. There's only 56 things that people care about. There's only 56 things that are powerful enough to influence the way we live our lives. It's like the DNA of what it is to be human and make decisions on a daily basis all day long. So if you think about those as 56 keys on a keyboard, and our job as marketers, business people, entrepreneurs, governments, not-for-profits, any organization who's trying to identify people and get them to do something, is figure out which of those 56 keys are being played when it comes to our thing. So which are the two or three chords that we need to play here so that our entire target audience will respond when we try and influence them and engage with them? They're all going to have some number of everybody in our target audience is going to have some number of those values in play. But the key is to figure out what are the two or three or four or five that they have in common so that we can craft a message that will attract them, that will engage them, and that we can use to influence them. So that's what we set out to do. And uh, it took a while, we're five years in now, but we've done 500,000 surveys around the world. We've measured with empirical, um, uh, statistically accurate information, with a statistically accurate level of empirical data that makes us more rigorous than you need for a PhD from Harvard. And we've measured for 180 out of 185 countries on the planet, North Korea, couldn't go there, a couple others like that, but 180 countries, so basically the planet, we now know what everybody values, what everybody cares about. And the way we built this database, it allows us to slice and dice it. So you can give me a target audience for, let's say, reading glasses. People who are going to buy these, um, let's say, recyclable, compostable reading glasses in Lithuania, and I'll tell you the two or three things they all care about, the way they're making their decisions. And if you know that, then all you need to do is connect the dots and say, well, these are the things you guys care about. These are the things my thing is about. Connect those two and people will be unable to resist. They're going to run towards it. We are biologically hardwired to chase what we value. So it's really that simple. There you go. It's very interesting. I love that concept. And, and you know, going back to what you said in the beginning, I think that often, much like, uh, for example, in Taoism, they they have the saying that is the Tao is that which cannot be explained or that which is merely two or three words, right? Everything that we truncate down to this simple philosophy, if you will, is usually way more complex than the word entails. Just like before we started this episode, you and I were, were talking about the overuse of the word entrepreneur yeah. in today's society, right? Where basically anyone who starts a business starts calling themselves an entrepreneur or as you aptly pointed out, you know, file for your business registration, immediately name yourself CEO is sort of the, the global First order entrepreneurial of business, culture. I'm the CEO of every one of my staff, which is just me. Just me, <laughs> me, the dog and the desk. That's about yeah. it. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I love this concept because uh, as we were talking about before on, on this show, one of the neat things that I've discovered is this curiosity more about the target audience and building something field of dream style, right? If you build it for them, they will come. Perfect. They always miss the way. for them part, right? Yeah, go ahead. We, we miss the for them part. So let's talk, let's go back to um, uh, demographics, psychographics, and value graphics and why you need all three. 
Uh, demographics are still an amazing way to understand what a group of people are. Are they men? Are they women? Are they rich? Are they poor? Are they young? Are they old? That's all cool because it might be really important. It might not, but it might be. There are certain products that are go back to the reading glasses. Probably not a lot of 18 year olds going to need those. So there's going to be an age piece that will be important when it comes to selling those reading glasses in Lithuania. The problem we've been having with demographics is we then use a demographic description of a target audience and we start making these wild assumptions. It's because they're older, because they tend to be male, because they tend to make $100,000 a year or more. Therefore, they're going to like this. And we use stereotypes. And we just, all this nonsense we've made up about what millennials want and what boomers right. want and what rich people are all about and poor people are all about. It's just, right. it's all nonsense. It's all just stereotyping, which is divisive, hurtful, and we now have the data to prove how inaccurate it really is. But demographics are still a useful way to describe a target audience. Mm -hmm. Psychographics, there's a billion different definitions for what psychographics are. The one I subscribe to is that it's a record of everything you can understand about your target audience up until now. Have they bought reading glasses before? How many pairs have they bought? How much have they spent on reading glasses in the past? So whatever kind of information you get out of your customer uh, CRM system, whatever you can get from doing secondary research and checking out reports online about the global uh, reading glasses market, um, all that kind of stuff, that's all really good psychographic information. But again, it doesn't tell you anything about who these people are. So far, we understand what they are from demographics, we have a, and then we have a record of their behaviors and likes and dislikes. But who are they? What do they care about? What are their values? How do they spend their days? What are they chasing all day long? If you add value graphics to that mix and stop trying to get demographics and psychographics to do that job, suddenly you've got this nice three-legged stool of audience understanding. It's solid. It's stable. You know who you're talking to. You know how they're going to make their decisions. And you know a lot about their past behavior in the particular product category you're talking about. Now you're ready to go and start spending money. And just start spending hours and, and time and resources trying to target these folks. I'm going to just carry on here for a moment. You're going to have to get really aggressive about cutting in on me because I can ramble forever. So just no worries at all. I'm, I'm really good at tangents. So <laughs> okay. don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, one of the things we've done with this database is not just measure all these 56 values around the world. We've also, because we wanted it to be a useful tool, we also measure demographics. So we have an accurate, it's called a it's called a random stratified statistically representative sample of the population, uh, which basically just means from a demographic perspective, it's an exact miniaturized replica with 500,000 people of the 8 billion people on earth. Mm -hmm. So it has the same number of men, women, rich, poor, young, old, black, white, Spanish, Chinese, Argentinian as the real world does. So now we can look at it by demographics. We can slice it up and we can say, well, let's take a look at millennials. How often do millennials agree on any of the stuff that we've measured? We have 436 different metrics that we've measured, those 56 values and then a bunch of other questions about those values. So millennials, they agree with each other 15% of the time, one five, which means 85% of the time millennials disagree with each other about everything. So if you're going to spend a buck targeting millennials based on what you think you know about them, you're going to at best get a 15% ROI on that dollar. Wow. Now if you use value graphics to understand your target audience and stop worrying about whether they're millennials or boomers or men or women, and just think about what these group of people that are attracted to my reading glasses, what do they care about? 
we see alignment on all the metrics in our data set that gets as high as 89%. So depending on how you want to do the math, that's some multiple of um, amazingness, uh, far, far better. You get an 89% ROI on that same buck. So the question becomes, do you want to spend a 15 cent dollar or an 89 cent dollar? A 15% hour or an 89% hour? By the way, that 15% number, all demographic categories, age, income, gender, marital status, number of kids, education, every single demographic cohort you can think of. If we average them out around the world, the people within those cohorts agree with each other about 10.5% of the time. To make that even more remarkable, all human beings on the planet, just because we're alive, we agree with each other 8% of the time. So wow. the 8% is the table stakes. You can just say anything you want, and you're going to get about 8% of the people in the world to go, yeah, it sounds smart to me. I like that. Let's go buy those reading glasses. And now, if you're going to target by demographic cohort, you're going to get a 2.5% lift on that. So really, using demographics is giving you a 2.5 on average percentage uh, a better chance of accomplishing your objectives than if you just do whatever the hell you want and not worry about who you're talking to. That's, a, that's incredible data and uh, so much to unpack there. I really appreciate all the information that you're sharing with us. There's uh, an interesting book called Make Noise, A Creator's Guide to Podcasting and Great Audio Storytelling by Eric Newsom. And it sounds like it's completely unrelated to what we're talking about, but it's not. And I'll explain as quickly as I can. So in that book, he talks about how, obviously, when you're creating a podcast, very relevant to, to me and other podcast creators, you need to think about your target audience first. And I'll admit, first and foremost, right now, that you and I were talking about demographics and psychographics before we got into this discussion. And I erroneously was lumping what you're calling value graphics into psychographics. So what I what I see from what you're you're telling us is that there's the intro level, so to speak, or the amateur level, which is demographics, right? And that's what the data that's pretty easily and readily available that without too much effort, we can all compile about our target audience, right? Regardless of what that audience is. Then the next layer, sort of intermediate, we'll call it, is psychographic, which does entail, you know, really digging into CRM, really thinking about who our target audience is, regardless if it's reading glasses, podcasts, you know, B2B, whatever it is. Then your, I like your third layer approach, which goes even deeper and we'll call maybe the expert or the advanced level where you're really drilling down into what's, what's really keeping these individuals up at night. What do they really care about? Exactly. And one of the interesting examples in this book, Make Noise, and he talks about it when he's helping you to sort of define your target audience for your podcast, but this can be really applicable to anything, right? Regardless of what you do in your life. Good foundational storytelling skills will make you successful, will we'll make you that much more successful. And part of that is, and I'm picking this up largely from this, this, what you're talking about. Part of that is if you're telling good stories, it's because you're thinking about what the audience wants to hear and how you Absolutely. can relate to them through storytelling, right? Which is Absolutely. one of the most core human elements, right? I do some work up here with uh, indigenous nations. And uh, um, so I'm uh, very privileged to have sat and talked to some um, amazingly smart, uh, wise elders uh, who, I don't want to use stereotypes here, but there's definitely a, a different way of looking at the world than uh, the rest of us seem to have. And one of the 
one of the best lessons I've ever learned was a beautiful, a beautiful, uh, in, in the indigenous communities, if someone's a, a, a woman and she's hit that status of being an elder, it's quite okay to call her an auntie. So this one auntie um, said to me, you know, if you're going to tell a good story, you have to speak into their listening. And wow. I was like, oh my gosh, that's such a great way of saying it. I mean, this is the original storytelling culture, right? For, for millennia, their stories were the way they passed knowledge down from one generation to the next. And they right. practiced and rehearsed those stories and they know from storytelling. Uh, so for them to have recognized that that's what, about, what it's about is to speak into their listening. Uh, I love that line. And it's a good thing for any storyteller in, in law, in just going to the grocery store and asking someone for the right ingredients. Like you need yep. to be able to explain yourself in a way that works with what they're listening for. And I guess that's what value graphics has done is we can now empirically identify what is your audience listening for instead of guessing. Because what we do right now is we sit down, we come up with a demographic description and we say, you take all these demographic cohorts that agree with each other about 10.5% of the time on anything. And we layer them on top of each other. So we have women who are 18 to 24 years old who have uh, graduated from university with an undergraduate degree and earn $75,000 a year in their first job. Those are four demographic cohorts that hardly agree with each other on anything layered together into a bigger group of people who hardly agree with each other on anything. And then we start <laughs> chucking money at it and go, well, they're obviously yeah. going to like pink because they're women. So I right. like pink. And if you think this stuff isn't true anymore, just walk into the toy department in any store and yep. show me the men, the boys' toys and the girls' toys. There's pink and there's blue. There's firemen and there's nurses. It's still there. It's still this pervasive reliance on demographic stereotypes that embeds everything we do in our world. And there's a, there's a historical reason for it. I mean, there was a time a long, long, long time ago in olden days where demographic stereotypes were necessary for the preservation of the species. If, if you were a young man, uh, age 15 or 16, and you hadn't impregnated some women and started to make some babies uh, and, and learned how to use a spear and go out and kill the mastodon and bring it home for dinner, uh, you were not holding up your end of the bargain and your village right. would suffer as a result. And the village down the street would smell weakness on the wind and they'd come and take over. So we all had roles based on gender, age, rich guys did a certain kind of job in those villages and the poor guys did another kind of job and everybody kind of knew their place and they followed the rules. Well, guess what? We don't have to do that anymore. So why are we still using these ridiculous ideas about what is a man? What is a woman? What is an 18 year old? What is a 47 year old? This doesn't make any sense in a world where technology has kind of created an equal footing. We can all curate and live our lives pretty much however we like. It just doesn't make sense. It's, you know what? It's the last big disruption that we need to do. We've disrupted everything else. Car ownership, home ownership, hotels, every sector has been disrupted. And yet they all still begin on this outdated, faulty layer of data from olden days. It just doesn't make any sense. That's a that's a, a brilliant point. So, okay, what, when we're talking about this value graphic approach without giving away the farm, obviously, because this is this is your bread and butter. So I don't want to don't want to get too much into the secret sauce. But if you're if you're talking to an entrepreneur, that's, let's say, a medium sized business. Right. And, and by that, I mean, they've got some they have some marketing budget. Right. They're not sure. just they're not just the I just filed a registration and I'm now CEO of <laughs> me, Inc. Right. Um, so they have some marketing budget. 
They have some degree uh, of knowledge about their target audience. Where do you start to ramp up towards being at a value graphic level? Do you start with a persona about your target audience? Is that the best way to start heading down that track? Or what's what's your key recommendation or best practice? I think we need to flip that around. So there's three ways for us to figure out what the values of your target audience are. So we'll get into those in a moment. But I want to talk about that starting with a persona piece. That's the problem. We start with a persona. We pick a demographic. And then we try and figure out what they want. What we should do is figure out who wants this thing and then see if the demographics are useful. Uh, if there's a persona buried in there, it might be that the, 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 the slice across all those demographic cohorts of the people who are interested in your thing, your idea, your business, your service, your brand, whatever, is so broad, the demographics are just getting in your way. Why limit yourself if you've got appeal across all kinds of demographic categories? So start with what your people care about who are attracted to this thing and then see if there's anything useful in the demographics that you can use to help yourself build a persona. So how can you figure out what people's value graphics are? There's three ways. The most accurate way in the world is to hire me and we will do a custom value <laughs> graphics profile for you. I love uh, that. But it's, it's not cheap uh, and it's not for everybody. So there are two other ways. Uh, the free way uh, is to just ask the right questions. You know, we do all kinds of surveys and polling and, you know, we use social media and we'll use SurveyMonkey and we do all these things. And what do we ask? We ask about who, we ask about what people are. Are you male, female, rich, poor? How old are you? How much money do you make? Do you have children? We ask all that stuff. That's easy. But we ask stuff about our thing. Do you like reading glasses? How many pairs do you own? We ask about psychographic stuff. What, what do you think of these ones that I've, I'm going to sell into the market in Lithuania? Do you think these are amazing? Do you love them? Do you hate them? It's all about us. And, and so that's it. We never say, what's on your mind? What are you thinking about before you go to bed at night? What's the one thing that really bugs you all day long? What's the thing that you wish you could change about the world? What are you chasing? We don't ask those questions. What are your secret things that you talk to your closest friends about? If we could just ask those questions to enough people, you'll start to see patterns emerge. You'll start to see the classic signals and the noise. And you'll be able to say, wow, isn't it interesting? When we ask people that stuff, the first thing out of their mouth, nine times out of 10, is something about their friends. These folks are very friendship focused. Or the first thing out of their mouth is something about environmentalism. Or the first thing out of their mouth is something about I don't know. Right now, it's happening a lot on Zoom. Like we all get onto these Zoom calls, and the first thing we do when we meet people, which we never used to do in the real world in a boardroom, is we say, "How are you doing? How's your life?" And people go, "Well, here's my cat," or "My kids are bugging <laughs> me. I can't wait to get back to the office because I need some alone time." Right. Uh, people are saying what they actually care about. They're offering it up. So if we could just find a way to ask those questions to enough potential customers and see what the patterns are. You're well on your way. I like to say it's like playing the piano with your fists. It's not really Mm -hmm. elegant. It's not super accurate, but at least you're banging on the right instrument, not on that broken old demographic guitar over in the corner there. So that's very interesting. That's the freeway. The the second way costs you about 14 bucks. And uh, this always sounds like I'm pimping my book. uh, But if anybody who's ever written a book and has it up on Amazon uh, is listening, they know you make about a dollar 50 a copy. So I'd need a million people to go and buy a copy of this before it makes me any money. So what we've done in that book, though, is there's a 10-question quiz. And if you use those 10 questions and throw them up on uh, SurveyMonkey or something like that, ask as many people as you can to fill out those 10 questions. What it'll do, the responses will point you to one of the 10 chapters in the book 
where we've just spilled our guts about everything we know about that particular, call it a tribe of folks. So there's 10 large archetypes that come out of the data for Canada and the United States. And these are the top 10 most aligned uh, groups of people who agree on the most stuff in our database. It's a little better than banging on the piano with your fists. Mm -hmm. uh, you may be using individual fingers and you're playing chopsticks now. Um, it's still not beautiful. It's only beautiful when we do a custom report and we can tell you precisely which of those 56 values, those keys people want to hear when they're thinking about your reading glasses in Lithuania. Uh, but for 14 bucks, it's better than just asking random questions uh, because it does come from the data set and it points you in the right direction. Think about it as, um, you know, this whole thing about testing the wind, right? It's going to tell you the wind's coming from the north and not from the west. So head north. Uh, and, and so that's it. There's uh, the freeway, the $14 and night. I don't even know how much it is on Amazon anymore. $14.99. The book's called, we are all the same age now. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, the third, the third way is, yeah, to, to hire me for a custom thing, but it's, it's, uh, again, for a small entrepreneur, even a medium sized entrepreneur, the price tag might be a bit much, but I I'm on a mission to just get everybody to change the way they look at the world. So I don't really care if you hire me or not. I mean, of course I do. I need to pay my mortgage, but if you can find a way to do this for free or for 14 bucks, just do it. Just stop right. using demographic stereotypes to think about each other because it's, you know what happens when we all buy into the notion of demographic stereotypes? What happens is Black Lives Matter. Yep. What happens is the gay rights movement. What happens is the feminist movement. Those were three examples of entire demographic stereotypes standing up and saying, do not treat me like a stereotype. I have my own life. I have things that are important to me. The color of my skin, my gender, my sexual preference has nothing to do with who I am as a person. So cut it out. If we ever needed any more evidence about how harmful and divisive demographic stereotyping is, there, there's three amazing examples. Yeah, that's that's a brilliant point. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and before we get any further, I will post a link to the Amazon page for your book, we are all the same age by David Allison. That'll be in the show notes so that people can pick up a copy available on Kindle and paperback. Uh, I'll be picking up a copy for sure because I love this topic. Um, I think one of the interesting things also is I'm thinking back to when I was in business school and undergrad at university. Uh, I went to Temple as an undergrad and, and I'm now fortunate to be back there teaching. But uh, when I took marketing in business school, one of the things that they teach you is that there's this bell curve, right, with standard deviations, and you have your early adopters and, and sort of your beta testers and these people who are, who are essentially, you know, potentially your ultra fans at the beginning of the bell curve. And then as your product life cycle is going on and on and on and maturing, it gets to the meat of that bell curve, that 66.7% in the middle, right, that big meaty chunk, which is now when you've got market uh, adoption, essentially, right? Where where now more common people are buying. So a, a great example might be smartphones, right? We can all kind sure. of relate to this. We we may have forgotten, but in the age before the iPhone, for example, <laughs> you know, you had the Palm Trio and those early versions, the the early Blackberries, all of those things that were all the early adopters, the people that were willing to pay six seven hundred dollars back then, which back then was. An inordinate amount for a cell phone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and now and now it's it's thirteen hundred dollars for for a smartphone with some serious tech. Right. Yeah. So but anyway, so those early adopters, those those Uber fans will buy into your product 
And and I think the interesting thing is that your concept turns this traditional thought of marketing, you know, start with the demos, work your way to the psychos, psychographics, and then into these value graphics, which is more of an advanced level. Those value graphics come back and apply to those early adopters, I, I think. It applies to all of them. I mean, here's the thing. I don't want anybody to think that I've invented something here. The fact that values determine everything we do is a longstanding truth that social scientists, psychologists, neuroscientists have been studying for decades. There's rooms full of PhD theses right. and all kinds of stuff that backs up the fact that values are the bomb. Values are the way we figure out where we're going to go next. And why am I talking to you today? There is something about the opportunity to be on this podcast that, that, that hit one of my values. And I said, yes. Because if there wasn't, I wouldn't have decided this. Right. All we've done is taken this basic human truth and put some data around it. So it's just available for the first time in a way that's useful for entire audiences. You know, another way to think about this is psychologists have been able to do this for a very long time, one-on-one. -on -one. You give someone an MMPI inventory or a Myers-Briggs test, all those are our values testing tools. And then we see what your values are and if they're in alignment with your real world, Everything's cool. If they're out of alignment, you need to lie on my couch and we'll go through 27 sessions together and we'll figure <laughs> out how to get your values and your real world aligned again so that you're a content and happy and well-adjusted human being. That's what right. well-adjusted means. Your reality right. and your values are in alignment. So it's been possible and it's been proven and it's been researched to death. Values are just it's it's like an accepted fact. This is this is how we have to figure out what people are all about. And it's the only way to do it. So all we've done is use some more algorithmic data collection techniques that allow us to build this half a million survey data set. Uh, and to do it in, if I can just drill down into data geekiness here for a second. Yeah, absolutely. A random stratified statistically representative sample of a population is an incredibly hard thing to build. If you sit down with a statistician and say, for any audience you care to define, that you were able to put together a 100, 200, 300 person random strat stat rep of that audience, they'll be super impressed. We're like, wow, that's a ton of work to get to a point where you have 300 people who match demographically the entire audience that you're studying and you have empirical data about that group. So imagine doing that for half a million people around the world. They light their hair on fire and run out of the room screaming. They just cannot comprehend how this happens using traditional survey and research methodologies. So if there's anything we've brought into the world here, it's the idea of a random strat stat rep. This enormous um, is now possible thanks to the new ways that we can collect data and new um, survey techniques. So there's my little bragging about how smart we are for a moment. Uh, <laughs> what, it, what it does, though, is it does help us prove some of these points. Um, demographics are ridiculous, other than a way to understand what people are. Uh, psychographics are useful, but the moment you write something down about someone's past purchase behavior or their preferences or their emotions, it's historical. The second you write it down, it's, it's from before. The only way to understand how to get people to do something next how to change behaviors and change the way people might uh, make a decision is to appeal to what they care about. <laughs> just when you just say it like that, it's like, well, obviously. 
Well, yeah, like 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 we said at the beginning, right? The 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 deeper the philosophy, the more obvious the statement to to just hit you over the head with, wow, how did I not see that for years and years and years and years? I want to point to your website also for those who are listening and who want to drill down more on this topic, valuegraphics.com. And you have a, a whole bunch of, I mean, just a plethora of information. You have a reports section where you can get information on Value Graphics 101, uh, different levels of, of values, uh, global values, uh, values that trigger restaurant choices, all sorts of really influential and uh, interesting information that people can pick up. How to yeah, influence the free, behavior. By the way, of, for free. Yeah. We just push that stuff out because I want to get everybody to change the way they look at the world. So we publish industry reports as much as we can and we just push them out there. I love it. So now about you, though, I want to focus on on your story a little bit as well. How did you stumble upon this or what curiosity originally triggered this? Take us back to the age before value graphics for uh, David Allison and where you were, what what was going on in your life and what 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 happened? What was the, the pivot point, so to speak, for you? OK, it's a fun story, actually. I um I spent most of my life working in marketing and advertising and had my own advertising um, marketing strategy and creative firm for about 10 years. And uh, we, we specialized in um, large scale real estate development work. So if someone was building a condo tower, we were the go-to company to come and say, what do we call it? Let's you know, figure out our billboard campaign. What are we going to put on the website? All that stuff. So it always started with a description of a target audience that either we came up with or the client would hand to us often a persona. It was about Sally and Bob and they live in the suburbs and they have two kids and one's a girl and she goes to piano lessons on the way and blah, 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 blah. So we'd take these personas, these demographic and sometimes psychographic descriptions of the target audience and we'd uh, go out there and real estate development advertising is an interesting thing because you, you'd have a million bucks or however much you got in your budget and you blow it all at once. There's none of this like Coca-Cola where you drip feed it over decades, right? You, right. you want to sell this thing out. And so for six months, you just play blanket the community that you're in. Uh, and then you have opening day. And back in the boom, boom days of real estate development, the thing would sell out in a month or two. So you always had a really fast feedback loop. Uh, so, you know, a year later, after we'd just gone and spent all this money, I'd go to the openings or uh, some kind of meeting or, you know, celebration. We're sold out and, and here's all the people. We're all getting together. Here's your new community who you're going to be living with in this building. And you look around and you go, wait a minute, these aren't the people I was targeting. Where'd all these people come from? Like, there'd be a couple in there who were Bob and Sally who lived in the suburbs with their kids and the daughter of these, but only a couple. The rest of them were there for, I have no idea, but guess what? We sold out the building. So off we go and we do it again and we do it again and we do it again. So when I sold my company, about three years ago, um, four years or five years ago now, wow, time flies. I was thinking to myself, that seems really inefficient. And it was around that moment in time where everything, you couldn't turn on the television or look at a newspaper or a website without some kind of story about millennials. Millennials were ruining this and they were destroying that and they were loved, they all like this, and they all like that. And I'd written a book about uh, baby boomers moving from single family homes in the suburbs to downtown condominiums as they get to that empty nest stage of their life. So I'd been on stages around the world talking about baby boomers. I was a leading expert on baby boomers and their migration patterns. <laughs> and everything I was reading about millennials was kind of the same stuff the boomers were telling me. In fact, one article in the New York Times one weekend when I was sitting in a coffee shop 
which was all about what millennials' hobbies are, because you know they all have the same hobbies. So these are the hobbies that millennials have, apparently, right. by this article. It was almost identically word for word the stuff the boomers told me that they like doing. I was like, wait a minute, this is the same people. How come? Like you could swap the word boomer into that article I was reading, and nobody would have known the difference. It would have gone, wow, it's a great article about boomers and their hobbies. So I thought, okay, I've got it. This is what my next book's going to be about, how to build real estate developments for mixed ages. Why are we building this one for rich boomers and this one for young millennials if they like the same stuff? Let's figure out how to build buildings for everybody. And in the course of doing that, we started collecting data. We got to 7,500, 10,000. I can't remember how many the first batch of data came in. And we found two really fascinating things. First thing, no one wants to live in a building full of people the same age. And yet that's all we were building in the real estate development world. We used age and other demographics to figure out who we're making a building for. But nobody wants to live in there. They, if given a choice, would far rather be in a building full of all kinds of different people. But they would be willing to give us at least 15% more than market value, rent, or own if one thing happened. And they just wanted to know this one thing. And they would pay more. And that's housing. Who offers to pay more for housing, right? This is the most expensive thing in your life. They said that I would pay as much as 15% more if you can tell me that I'll be in a building full of people who care about the same things I do, who value the same stuff I do, who look at this world in the same way I do. So that was a kind of a moment where I was like, whoa, wait a minute. This has nothing to do with age or gender or income. This has everything to do with people being interested in being around other people who are just like them. So we thought we were writing a book about that. We were going to call it the Boomerennials. I still own boomerennials.com if anybody wants it, because I think it's a cool name. It is a cool name. Uh, I need to figure out how to put the letter Z in there these days. The Boomerennials <laughs> or something. Uh, and then I stopped and I was like, well, why is this just real estate? Why isn't this ballpoint pens, reading glasses, uh, bank accounts, uh, political candidates, and uh, vacation destinations? So we started really doing a lot of research at that point. We got up to 40,000, 50,000. By the time I published that book that we just talked about, we're all the same age now. We were at 75,000 surveys and we were accurate for Canada and the United States. And it was apparent that we were onto something here, that values were an organizing principle around which people were very, very predestined uh, to, to group themselves. We have tribal affiliations with people who we see the world in the same way. So if a product can just say, hey, you guys, we did this thing because we know you care about X, Y, and Z. So guess what? We're all about X, Y, and Z. People will be like, what? And they're going to run towards that. Right. And that's when the idea got born and wrote that book and used the momentum that it gave us to keep going and keep going. And in the background, we were building more data and more data. We got China after that. And then we went into uh, Oceania and uh, a little bit of Europe and gradually built and built and built. And here we are. We've got the whole world now, the world's first database of what everybody cares about, which is kind of a cool sentence to say. Yeah, it's super cool. I love it. And and one thing that I want to point out also that subtextually I think you've hit on, but I just want to make it clear for those who are listening, is that this applies to everything, right? It goes beyond just your customers. And I think this ties in very nicely with what I and, and some other people that that I think are like-minded have like-minded values, I'll, I'll start to say, rather than saying are like-minded thinkers. Um, 
there's there's this trend towards social capitalism, I think, globally, right? Triple bottom line organizations, whatever hashtag you want to apply or, or label you want to apply to this. But the concept is um, that you have this organization that's not just for profit. It's also for the good of the community or has a purpose, right? There are three P's in a triple bottom line organization, profit, people, and purpose. And, and largely profit they're all supposed to be equal, but largely profit is probably the last one to be focused on, it, with which has a lot of value, I think, in meaning, right? That we're starting to shift towards how do we affect our society? What's the purpose that we exist for? And I've never really tied the two together, but I, I think you did so nicely just now. It's because people want to engage with and spend their money on organizations that have the same values that they do. That's why people follow more so follow leaders than companies now, right? Elon Musk has way more followers than Tesla does on social sure. media because people want to engage with and follow these person these personas for lack of a better term, right? The the people that have their values. So one caution there. Um when we're talking with non-empirical lenses on about the word values, we tend to assume that they're all lovely, that they're all oh, about point. you know collaboration and community and caring and all these things that I call those six vice presidents in a box of donuts values. That's how we used to figure <laughs> out what our values were. We take our six you know most uh, underused vice presidents who can afford an afternoon, throw a box of donuts at them in a boardroom and say, "Come out of there and tell us what our values are." Maybe you've done a little bit of survey work with your staff or something, but you know, it's mostly a decision based on what's everybody going to think about us. We want to call we, our values are diversity and uh, inclusion and um, environmentalism and sustainability. And our, our shareholders will love it if we say profitability. So we'll throw that in there, too, uh, because there's values like status. So if you're very motivated by status, if that's an important value to you, you're going to be drawn towards anything that will increase your sense of status and make you help you signal your status to the outside world. Environmentalism and, and uh, sustainability and these, these um, let's call them more, um, uh, these softer values that we all like to believe is what values are all about. Uh, we did an interesting study recently just to shed a little light on that. Um, we, we, one of the things being talked about around the world right now is this great transfer of wealth that we're about to enter, where the boomers are going to shuffle off the dance floor and pass, pass the money on to the next generation. And a lot of people are trying to figure out what is this next generation of people with money? What do they care about? What are they all about? And how can we change our financial institutions, our banking, our, our, our um, luxury goods, or anybody who's chasing people with money is trying to sort this out in advance. So we did a study where we only talked to an audience of people who are um, uh, going to inherit at least 10 million bucks. So these are folks who already got some cash uh, and they're about to get a lot richer. So we call it the inheritors report. And we tried to figure out what are these folks all about? So the first thing that happens when we do a biographic study is we, we segment just like any other segmentation study. So we, were, we found there was 21% of these folks. Now remember, this is statistically accurate more than you need for a PhD from Harvard. So 21% of the inheritors in the United States, people who are about to inherit 10 million or more, these folks care about what we call ESG investing and ESG philanthropy, which is environmentalism, uh, sustainability, uh, sorry, environmentalism, social, and good governance. So those are the three categories of investment, of philanthropy, of shopping, of 
um, goods acquisition that these folks are focused on. 21%. It's not everybody. The rest of the audience of people who are going to inherit $10 million a month or $10 million or, or more, they're like, mm, yeah, sure. Cool. Nice. But more important to me are these other things that these other segments are, are organized around. So Interesting. it's a, it's good news, bad news. I mean, I think there's a whole lot of people who think this next generation of wealth is going to rescue us, uh, that they're going to throw so much cash around ESG initiatives uh, going on in the world that um, we're going to pull ourselves out of this terrible nosedive that we seem to be in. But it's only 21%. On the other hand, it's 21% of the richest people in the United States who are all prepared to chuck their money in that direction. Right. So that's not so bad when you think about how much money is concentrated in those top tiers of, uh, of wealth in the United States and that 21% of them are entirely focused on ESG investing and philanthropy. That's really interesting. Ken Wilbur, who's a uh, an American philosopher that has developed, he's one of the main proponents of this philosophy called integral philosophy, uh, which seeks to integrate everything essentially into this philosophical system, talks largely about what's called spiral dynamics, um, which is this sort of evolution of human consciousness and thought. And, and I use the word evolution lightly because that tends to have a negative connotation that we're more evolved than the society that that was, you know, 100 years ago before us or something like that, or even a thousand years ago, if you want to go back that far. But it, it, it's this concept of evolution of consciousness on individual levels, on um, uh, cultural levels, on global levels, at, at, at all levels, if you will, all levels, all, all, all things. And uh, the interesting thing that I think from what you were just talking about is that he says that for sort of a philosophical revolution, for lack of a better word, to happen, for a society to start to shift as a society in terms of their philosophical thinking, uh, you need essentially air quotes buy in from 20 percent. And hmm. once that 20 percent has hit it's it's all you know you're you're basically cresting to the top of the roller coaster and it's all just going to start to take off and the philosophy or or the sort of period that we've been in and and he predicts that we're butting up against a massive change in in to what's called second tier thinking uh which is really interesting it, it's something um he wrote a book called boomeritis which would be right in line with with what you're talking about where he he explains it, it's part fiction, part reality. And he explains this whole concept in a series of lectures through the eyes of a college student himself as a philosopher. It's really very meta and kind of funky as some philosophical things will be, right? But the movement that we're in is from what what they, they assign colors because uh, the ugliness of demographics, as you said, makes it difficult to assess. But they assign colors to make it easy to sort of identify where different cultures are, where different societies are. So we're in what he calls the orange slash green meme in the West, at least right in the U.S. and Canada, in, in these uh, more Western cultures, even in some of Europe. And it's orange is basically um, very much focused on personal achievement. So very entrepreneurial, if you will. And green is very environmental, very everyone has a voice, very communal, 
if you will, uh, all all for one kind of thing, you know, um, and we're in that sort of period. The next level is a more collaborative and um, what they call the yellow meme. It's changed in, in colors and names, depending on which philosopher you're talking about. Don Beck was the original sort of proponent of this, I think, in the 70s of this spiral dynamics theory. And uh, it's really interesting because when we're talking about things like this, like you said, it's tough, right? Because it's abstract when we're talking about values. But when you assign these things and then you understand that where a culture is at in terms of where they're at in this, again, I, I hesitate to use evolution, but we'll use that word for lack of a better term, in terms of, of socioeconomic and cultural thinking. And the interesting thing that I think once you start to think about it in this in this uh, using this lens of spiral dynamics, you begin to understand that different cultures have different values, but also speak essentially a different language because of their values. Right. Because of what's important to them. And we're talking to them and thinking about them in our perspective, which they just they just they're they're It's completely different. It's like speaking. Chinese and English and trying to figure out what we're talking about. It, it's not we're not speaking even remotely close to the same language. Right. I, th- th- that's their behaviors. Those those are responses to what their values are. Everything comes back to your values. So I haven't heard of spiral dynamics before, but I'm going to look into it. It sounds very fascinating. Sure, sure. Uh, what we've been able to do is map. We, we break the world into nine regions and then within each of those. Uh, we can go down to a country level. We can go down to a city level in terms of what the values of the residents of that part of the world are. So I'll give you an example. Uh, in the United States and Canada, our values are very, very similar. We have uh, family uh, and relationships are very near to the top. Uh, and then we start flipping around by one or two positions in terms of third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. Things like personal growth, personal responsibility, things like this. What's remarkable about the Middle East, for example, is that next to family, the most important value to everybody in that region of the world is morality. Uh, it only showed up there after we started doing surveys to the extent that we do them. And it isn't on the list. It wasn't. Uh, so we started with a list of 40 values that come from the World Values Index, which is a really respected um, you know, sociological measurement system. Uh, but we kept seeing, because we're doing so much more than the World Values Index does, we have so many more surveys, we kept seeing people respond to things in a way that just didn't fit into those 40 values, which is how we ended up with an extra 16. So we kind of, we found 16 more things that are important enough that they become a value and they're not just a behavior. And one of them was morality. And it only showed up because it was so important in the Middle East. Once we put it on the list, we see that it shows up around the seventh or eighth spot on, on the list of the top uh, 56 values for Africa. And it's somewhere halfway down the list in China. But other than that, it doesn't show up anywhere else in the world. It's not important enough to, to even rank uh, with any kind of uh, statistical interest in the United States and Canada. So when I was there speaking a while ago, I was up on stage and I was you know hesitant to do this because I was aware of the fact that I was in a culture that was not my own. There were many people in the audience, women in full burqas and, and, and right. men in, wearing, um, uh, you know, traditional. Uh, it, was, it was just very clear, clear to me that this was not an audience that I was used to speaking to in Boston, for, for example. So I said, got up there, I said, well, you know what? Here's what we found out. Uh, next to family, morality is the most important thing in your life. 
And so many of your decisions are driven by some combination of those top two values about family and about getting to the right place in the right way and doing things in the, for the right reasons. And there's a sort of stone, uh, stone face thing that happens there that people don't show a lot of emotions publicly. Um, massive generalization I just used, but compared to a North American audience, it's, it's quite um, somber. Uh, and then afterwards, there's always people who come up to you and want to talk as you get off the stage. Everybody's like, hey, thank you. And then there's a crowd that comes. So I had this group of women who I will never see anything but their eyes and men in these um, uh, traditional garb that we tend to think of as almost in a cartoonish kind of way. Um, Western media, Western eyes looking at this, that they're still, they're, they're dressing this way. And they came to tell me that I had nailed it that they are taught since they are small, which is when our social, when our values happen mm -hmm. as we're being socialized mm -hmm. in late childhood, early, early adolescence, when we figure out what our values are, that doing the right thing is more important than anything, more important than religion, more important than authority, more important than status, family and morality drive their lives. I kind of teared up having them come and, and, and get through any, behavioral cultural norms about going and talking to the guy from away and telling him that he got it. Uh, it was strong enough for them that they were able to come and say those things to me. Um, on another occasion in, in that was in Dubai in Abu Dhabi. Uh, I had a woman come up to me afterwards who was clutching my book and said to me, it's so important that you're here to talk about how demographics are a bad way for us to think about each other. Uh, I still get shivers up my spine thinking about that one. Um, she asked me to sign, to, sign, to sign my book. Lots of people do. That was the most special one so far. Uh, it's understanding these 56 values. Everything roots back to these. Our behaviors, our emotions, our feelings, our, our tribalism, our, our, um, our culture. Uh, Everything comes back to these 56 simple core human values in some combination or another are driving all of this for all of us 24 7, 365. The way you understand if you're actually talking about a value versus a behavior or something else is if you can no longer ask why. So if you say to me, um, a hierarchical structure, why? Well, because it helps us maintain order. Why? Because we want to make sure we get things right. Oh, now we're at a value. That's morality. Uh, so as long as you can still say why, and there's a logical answer, you're still just talking about behaviors or feelings or emotions. or all. It's a really rough rule of thumb, uh, but it's a great way to sort of stop yourself and just go, wait a minute, am I using... Uh, terminology here that's not actually accurate. Are we actually talking about the root value behind a behavior or an emotion? While I'm on this ramble, let's talk about emotional indexes for a moment. It's another tool that people use to try and understand a target audience. They'll go out to market once or twice a year or whatever and talk to a sample of the target audience and say, everybody loves Nike way more than Reeboks. And last year it was the reverse. You know what? If you ask those same people one day later, 
what they felt. They may have been back flip up back in the other direction. Our emotions are like they change with the wind. You know, we have a great experience one day, our shoe falls apart the next day. We have somebody from customer service call us and we don't like them, or we go into the store and we didn't get good. So we hate them now and we liked them yesterday. And right. That changes. Emotions come from our values though. Why do we like something? Because it's it's ringing a bell around one of our values. It's given us the status we're looking for. Or it's making us feel like this was a smart move for our family or it's helping me with my personal growth. Those won't ever change. It's, it's a very timely thing to think about right now as we're all dealing with COVID. We're dealing with these massive behavior changes that we've had to have. One of the most common questions I get asked is, isn't this changing people's values? And the answer is no. If you never cared for your family before COVID, you didn't suddenly start caring for your family. If you cared for your family, however, your behavior around that value probably changed. You triple down on that. You're like really concerned for your family, but you didn't suddenly start caring for them if you never did before. You don't get, we're not like octopuses where you get to chop off a value and grow a new one based on circumstances. They're yours for life. And everything you do from the moment that you're socialized and those are locked in is all going to be based on what those core human values are. So I would be really interested to sit and talk to someone about um, spiral dynamics because it sounds like they're kind of headed in the same direction, but perhaps the number of values that they're looking at is limited uh, as compared to the 56 that we've discovered, um, which you know, have their genesis and as we've already discussed. This, this does apply to everything, right? So it's not just your customer. It's also your employees and talent retention. Right. Oh, yeah. It's also your stakeholders within your community, whether that's the community at large and stakeholders can even include your competitors because you need a market to survive and thrive. You, you generally speaking, do not want to be the only show in town, because while that sounds great, that might mean that the market's also crumbling around you, which is not a good thing. You, having competition is a good thing. It breeds a solid, stable market. Right. So there's three. We talk about it as the three C's. It's a culture creation and communication. And that if you understand the values of the people that you're trying to engage with, that you can create an amazing culture, whether that's the culture of your employees and your internal, your external culture with your, with your uh, community, as you say, with your customers, with your prospects, with your competitors, with the media, with everybody around you that would influence culture. If you know what people care about, you know, what's the right decision. I mean, let's take it down to a really silly like HR level. Um, let's say you got 10 bucks to put into some sort of a rewards and recognition program. First off, do your people even care about rewards and recognition? Or that $10 be better spent on uh, upgrading their chairs? Uh, you know that if you know what they care about. Um, and if it, they do want rewards and recognition, what kind of rewards and recognition or training opportunities or whatever, it'll all come back to what they care about. So you can figure out how to spend your $10 in HR um, uh, money in a way that is aligned with what people care about instead of just guessing. You know what? They want ping pong tables in the lunchroom. That's what they're after. Well, <laughs> well, who knows? Like Maybe they are uh, and maybe they aren't. Uh, and then creation, like right to the moment where I, if I had my way, every company would start by understanding the value set that they're trying to play into and then come up with a product that fits that as opposed to coming up with a product and going, okay, now who's going to buy this thing? Uh, figure out who you're talking to and what they care about and then develop a product in your area of expertise that makes sense for those folks. Uh, not based on whether they're male or female or rich or poor, but based on whether or not they're interested in environmentalism and family and uh, um, personal growth. If those are the three things that drive every decision they make, play into those. 
And then lastly, the obvious one, which is marketing and communication, all your messages. I don't think we tend to think about communication broadly enough, though. I mean, the way you answer the phone is part of your communication strategy. But what it says on the bottom of your email when you sign off and somebody sends somebody an email, all of that stuff is about how you're communicating around those values. So as much as possible, the job is to just continually connect the dots. You know what people care about? And this is the stuff you've got to work with. Just make sure they're connected and point that out. Make it very clean and plain. Something that I'm really interested in, but also a crutch for me, is that I've become a very avid student, just internally in my own brain, of how others speak, how they communicate. And I'm listening for personal pronouns to try to determine, uh, not in any negative or sneaky way, but just so I can communicate better with them what type of individual they are, right? So as just a really easy and basic example, let's say they use the pronoun I or me a lot, right? So then clearly they're a little egocentric. And I I don't even mean that in a negative way. I mean that in the, that's what they're thinking about. They're clearly focused on themselves because 80% of the word pronouns coming out of their mouths are I or me, I did this, uh, you know, this is what I did this weekend. And you're probably not going to get a lot of questions from that individual about what you did. Maybe you will, maybe, maybe they're, they're a good communicator in that respect. But when you're speaking to someone who's more, you know, talking about us or we in the, even when they're talking about themselves, they're trying to make it a little bit more inclusive of the people around them. That gives you a little bit more about what they're talking about. Or maybe they don't use either one of those and all they talk about is community effects and what's going on in their neighborhood. And can you believe, you know, what happened in, uh, you know, a recent scandal with the police and Black Lives Matter? Clearly, that's their focus. So I, I tend to use that stuff when I'm in a networking event or a situation or even when I'm talking to a potential client. Uh, I'm an attorney full time. And when I'm sort of discussing a client initially, generally speaking, first words out of my mouth are, I'll give you a little bit about my background in a second, but tell me about your company and what's going on. You know, you you actually, you really do need to read the book because those 10 um, big value graphic archetypes, we call them the 10 largest, most aligned groups in the data set for North America. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm so familiar with them now that they've become kind of a party trick. So I can talk to someone for about five minutes and I know which one of those 10 types they are. And once you know that, everything about that person, chances are really, really good that what they've revealed that has brought you to the conclusion that they're chapter four, uh, everything else in chapter four is going to be true for them as well. So you can stop the conversation and go, oh, really? Uh, That's really interesting. Let me me ask you a couple of questions. Is this true? Do you believe this? Do you act like this? Is this something that's uh, a recurring pattern in your life? And inevitably, the jaws drop and they're like, how they just they're it's it's a fun thing to do if you familiarize yourself with those 10 chapters what i tried to do to make them uh, uh palatable and memorable is at the beginning of each one we've um we've written a little story uh a little piece of fiction four or five paragraphs uh and it within there touches on all the different characteristics and uh attributes that we know to be true for the tribe so if you just remember the little story um I'll give you an example. The most aligned uh, value graphic archetype in, in Canada and the United States is, is a group that we call Josh. 
Uh, and Josh is uh, the representative, the persona, if you will, of the Adventure Club. And the Adventure Club, here's what Josh's story is all about. He's sitting, on a, he's sitting in the kitchen, he's listening to his girlfriend talk, but he's not really paying attention to her. Uh, he's uh, watching the food fall out of her mouth and bounce across the counter. Um, he's more focused on the fact that he's just spent his last couple of bucks to make the, the, the final payment on the what we call the Yoga Bros retreat that he's about to go on, where he and a <laughs> bunch of his buddies go out in the in the in the desert and they spend a week doing yoga together and having a good time. And she's complaining that he's going away for a week to do this with his with his buddies again. And if it's not this, he's out dancing at the, or the, he's like constantly out doing stuff. And he's sitting and listening to her and he's thinking about, well, what am I going to do here? I've, I've got, uh, I don't have enough money to pay my phone bill this month. So I'm going to have to find another way to make cash. So I better stick around because she's feeding me and then I can use the grocery money to pay my, my phone bill. Uh, and then he just finally hits a point where he says, nah, you know what? And he just gets up and he grabs his gym bag off the floor and he walks out the door and you know, he's not coming back. Uh, and that's Josh. So when I, when I meet a Josh, uh, they're always telling me about the big adventure they just had. And the big adventure <laughs> could be anything from just went sailing to tried a new restaurant. I mean, we all have a different idea of what a big adventure is, right? Sure. But if they're a big adventure person, chances are commitment is something they're really scared of. They don't want to do the same things or be with the same people in any part of their life. They're probably serial monogamists at best. Uh, they, they tend to change their ideas about what's fun and interesting. They probably, as a child, played six or seven different instruments and got bored of each one after a month and a half and made their parents crazy because they had to keep going and buying violins and flutes and hiring piano teachers. You can just take that whole notion of what it means to be constantly looking for the next biggest, funnest, better thing than where you are right now and apply it to all aspects of their life. And they're just like, wow, that's amazing. But really, all you've done is figure out what the pattern is. You've just seen what they care about most. And in this case, it's about chasing adventures. Wanderlust, as it's called, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, the opposite in many respects is another group that we call the Loyalists Lodge. And I have a lot of Loyalist Lodge in my personality. Uh, I collect things, which is loyalty to a product or a kind of item. Uh, I have certain restaurants that I go to and a chair in those restaurants and a thing on that menu. And I don't vary because there's a chance I won't like it. And I am 100% sure I will like the one that I know about. Uh, I have favorite brands of clothing. And when I wear out a pair of jeans, I just go buy another identical pair. Because why take the chance and try something new? I have rituals and processes and routines around everything in my life. Uh, that's what being loyal to your entire ecosystem uh, is about very loyal to people. Once you're my friend, I'll throw myself under a bus for you. Uh, and I expect the same from you, by the way, because right. if you are not willing to throw yourself under a bus for me, then clearly you're not enough uh, of a loyalist for me to be loyal to. Um, it's a, it, it's, it, as a lawyer, I think you'd find this very useful to be able to put people into one of these 10 typologies and then understand more than what they've just told you about them. Yeah, as I said, I'm I'm honestly going to check out the book because this is a, a topic that's very interesting to me. So I, I just have one last question because otherwise I'll keep you here all day long talking <laughs> about this stuff. Um, so you talked briefly in the in the last segment before this one about uh, if you could get entrepreneurs to focus on something, it would be to focus first on the values that they're speaking to before rushing to creating a product and all that stuff. 
Could you give just sort of a practical example of that, of, you know, without giving away the secret sauce? I, I mean, I, I certainly respect, you know, that that there's, um, no, there's no secret sauce. I just want everybody to start using this stuff. So um, an example of where demographics first has ended up being a bad idea. More so an example of let's say you're you're talking to an entrepreneur who's got an idea, right? They, they have this idea. They've done nothing else yet. They haven't turned it into a tangible medium yet, but they they know that some things they got to be in their bonnet and they know it's a great idea. A problem I have on a daily basis. And um, and maybe it's not a great idea, by the way, but but they're they're still in the discovery phase and they're preparing to go to go start heading towards going to market. Right. And I think what you're talking about is more so before you do anything else, you've got that idea. You think there's a market for it. You know, maybe you've done a little bit of research. How do you, instead of diving into, let me set up an MVP or, or prepare a, a proof of concept or, or business plan or whatever, how do you start with that? What values am I speaking to with this idea first? How do, what's the, the, the sort of structure for that? Let's make this concrete. Give me, give me an idea. Sure. Let's say... Um, we're going to start a new uh, media and entertainment company, right? And we're going to focus on uh, creating podcasts for a very specific uh, business, right? So we're a media marketing company. We're a podcasting company, let's say. And we're going to develop podcasts for um, small entrepreneurs who are startup tech companies, let's just say, right? Uh, so we're going to help them get their message out. We think this is a good core marketing strategy, and um, and we think it's a great idea for them, and it can add a lot of value to their marketing strategy. So the idea is you're going to create a platform and make it simple for small startup tech companies to have a podcast and to use podcasting as a tool. Exactly. Okay, got it. So you've already identified a demographic and a set of psychographic characteristics there. Right. Uh, if you were to dive a little deeper, if I was to sit down with you under a traditional exploration as a branding guy, let's say, or a product development guy, or even a VC, I would mm -hmm. say to you, well, let's, let's figure out who our demographic is here. Who starts uh, small tech companies? Who, who are these folks? And we'd come up with some kind of stereotype about them being, uh, you know, between probably 28 to 35 and predominantly male. Uh, and probably college educated and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then we'd start thinking about psychographics and we'd say to each other, um, well, you know, they're, they're probably really pressed for time. Uh, if this is a side hustle and in addition to a full-time job, they're really pressed for time. Um, and uh, so, you know, being able to be super convenient and a way for them to save time around this particular function seems like it would be a really smart sort of pathway to go down. So we've just developed a little demographic profile, a little psychographic profile. And then we would go out into the world and we'd try to uh, figure out how we're, what we're going to say to these folks about how we can save you time with your tech startup. And we'd talk to them in a language that we felt was appropriate for that age group and that demographic. Well, what we would do with this from a values perspective is we'd say, let's forget all that stuff. Let's just say who's interested in a platform that helps them do podcasts. And we go out there and we'd find out who these folks are. And what might come back is everything from school teachers to uh, grannies to um, uh, community politicians and social activists 
to tech entrepreneurs and startups. So if your business is really about helping people have easy access to what podcasting can bring to whatever it is they're looking to accomplish, you suddenly have this really wide, broad set of folks. And then what we are able to do with Value Graphics is say, and because we've identified this amazing group of people who, sure, now you can look at them and describe them demographically. But if you start that way, you're, you're looking at the world like this instead right. of with, a, with, with blinders on for anybody who's just listening to audio. And I made that motion to my head. Um, uh, you've got this really broad, thin definition of folks who are keenly interested in what you're about to offer. So if we can say those folks, what they're most interested in is personal growth, let's say that this is for them a way to feel like they're being a better version of themselves, that right, that this is going to be a solution to this yearning they have, this value that they're looking to have augmented around growing, that it's really not about time saving. Some of these folks actually have a whole whack of time, uh, all time in the world, maybe just not the expertise or the desire or whatever, who cares? Those are all just behaviors and feelings and emotions. What matters is the value that they find in common across that group is personal growth and that they're all looking to do this because of who they're going to meet and that the opportunity to talk to interesting people and learn new things is really what's driving them. Well, suddenly your little idea has gone from being this specific group of people that we're going to try and hit over the head with what we think they're looking for to saying, hey, everybody out there, wouldn't it be really interesting? Wouldn't you enjoy your life more? If you got to talk to really cool, interesting people in depth all the time, you ever thought about having a podcast? We can do that for you. We'll set you up. We'll make it easy. We'll show you how to do it. We'll help you run it. We'll offer these services, whatever they happen to be. And you're going to be the most interesting person in the room because you're going to have met and talked to all these cool folks who are also interested in what you're interested in. Isn't that fun? Give us a call. Far better message than we think you're out there, tech entrepreneurs, uh, and we can save you some time with your podcast. So fly right over their head. Right. Not only that, but I think there's there's something else there. And thank you for that example. That was really, really clear, uh, uh, especially for someone who's thought a lot about what we just talked about. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, so I appreciate that. But one, one of the interesting things I think there, too, is that... Um, there's been a nagging question that I've I've had for a long time now, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with this a lot, um, and and business owners as well. I you know trying not to lump both of those into the same bucket, but it's I've you hear often from a frustrated business owner or or entrepreneur. I've come up with this idea, I've put my hand out. Why is no one putting money in it, or mm -hmm. why is no one buying into my amazing idea? Right. And I think one of the cool things about what you just pointed out is if we're looking at that particular example as a case study, one of the things that we, we and I've been guilty of this and it just popped into my head when you said it, was we tend to forget because we're so focused on demos and psychographics that there's a key thing, a key value about what makes a tech startup uh, entrepreneur, for example, a tech startup leader, a tech startup founder, and that's that they're probably a tinkerer and somebody who DIYs a lot of stuff, right? They're curious. They're trying to solve a problem. They're using tech to do it. So they like to build new and innovative things. They like to disrupt. So you might be talking to someone who rather than wanting to hire somebody and pay whatever thousands of dollars for them to produce a show for them, 
might want to try to figure things out for themselves. And in your, your message, one, you've opened the net up to more opportunity rather than less. And two, you've also taken, taken the narrative away from what would otherwise be an objection in the back of their mind that they're probably not even going to raise when you're pitching them right on, on this product or service. They're probably not going to say, yeah, I could just do this myself. They may if they're, if they're bold enough, right? But most of the time, they're going to be thinking that and they're just going to say, yeah, and how much does all this cost, which is really just a hidden objection to you're not hitting on their values anyways, right? If somebody's talking about price, then you're nowhere near the, the sphere of where where they might even buy from you, right? If a guy walks onto the lot, taking it back to Glen Gary, Glen Ross, to traditional always be closing kind of thing. If a guy walks onto the lot, it's not because he's trying to get out of the rain, right? It's because he's interested in buying something. And if he's, if price comes up early on in that discussion, it's because you've not even come close, right? Do you agree with that? I absolutely agree with that. I think that if you can, I mean, and we go back to like, this is a nice way to close here. We go back to the original story I was telling you about people looking at where they're going to live. The most expensive thing that they're going to spend their, their a significant portion of their income on. And saying to us that if you can tell me that I'm going to be in a building that satisfies my values, I'll spend as much as as 15% more. Uh, and it's just because I want to be around validation of my values. Uh, those folks are not going to be looking at an offering and saying, well, it's $10,000 cheaper across the street. They're going to be saying, across the street is not what I'm about. This is what I'm about. I will pay the extra $10,000 to be in this building because this is where I belong. These are my people. I'm going to feel good every day here. You can't put a price tag. That's brilliant. David, thank you so much. Again, once again, I, I actually just clicked buy now with one click on Amazon. So <laughs> I, I am going to be reading your book immediately after this. I'm sure uh, Amazon will alert me immediately because you're like, <laughs> <laughs> I can get a cup of coffee today. Thank you for your purchase. <laughs> there's, there's your dollar fifty. It'll get you half of the way there at Starbucks. Um, so uh, we, we are all the same age now. Value Graphics, The End of Demographic Stereotypes by David Allison. Um, check it out on Amazon. Uh, you can get a Kindle or paperback. Um, also, valuegraphics.com. How else can people reach out to you and where do you live on social media mainly if they want to check out your stuff? Uh, LinkedIn's kind of my home base. Um, I would dabble it in, on Instagram and Twitter, but uh, I haven't quite sorted out how to do that effectively yet. So LinkedIn's about just just put my name, David Allison or Value Graphics into, uh, uh, into LinkedIn and you'll find me there. Cool. Awesome. Makes sense because that's where your target audience probably lives for the most part anyways, right? I, let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, David, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. This was a great conversation. Thanks a lot for everything. Yeah, you're welcome. It was a lot of fun. Nice talking with you.